Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for leading us this morning. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Church. My name is Tom. I am one of the teaching pastors here. If this is your first time with us, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for enduring the strangeness, if you're not a Christian, of a group of people singing to a God they can't see. Um, and thank you so much for being here to hear that God speak to us in his word. Uh, here at Trinity, we practice a style of preaching called expository preaching. That's a big fancy word that just means that we intend to make the point of what we're saying up here, the point of what we find in scripture. So at the end of our time this morning, if you cannot see from what we have read uh, the points that we're making, then, then we have failed. Our goal is to make the point of what we're saying, the point of what is written right here. The way we do that is we usually choose a book of the Bible. This, uh, this morning we're going through the book of Daniel, and we go verse by verse and try to understand what it meant to its original hearers in their context and what it means to us today. To aid you in that, I would invite you to get a listening guide. If you didn't already get one, just put your hand up, and a member of our Connect team will get you one from the back. This morning, we're tackling quite a large chunk of text. It is Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 30, the famous Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace. That's probably what comes to most of our minds when we think of the book of Daniel. It is a large chunk of text, so with no further ado, let me read it for us this morning. Daniel chapter 1, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 30. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar set together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, hark, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall bow down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made? Well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown 
into the burning fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father God, this morning we we thank you, we marvel at your word. We thank you that you are a God who has not been silent but has spoken. And I ask this morning, Lord, that as we examine these things, that you would hide me behind your hand, that you would speak your word through me and only your word through me, Father, and let all else be forgotten. And Lord, let us have ears to hear, eyes to see. Let us not look at your word and then be as those who have forgotten what they looked like after looking at a mirror. But let us put these things into practice and be blessed in what we do. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. So I know that for many of us, maybe even all of us, this is a familiar text. If you grew up going to Sunday school, you heard this. You probably saw it presented with a flannel graph. If you watched VeggieTales growing up, you of course know the story of Rack, Shack, and Benny who won't bow down to the giant golden bunny that that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sets up. This story is so familiar, and we heard it so many times as a kid, that we can run a great risk as we come to it this morning. We can risk thinking of this as a mere children's story, maybe meant to teach a spiritual principle, but not historical fact. Well, it is presented to us with a purpose, yes, but as historical fact. These are real men who faced a real crisis, And they overcame that crisis by trusting in the God who is as real and active today as he was in their time. As I said, it is written with a specific purpose, to encourage God's people then and now to resist idolatry by trusting in the God who delivers. Now, before we dive into the text, let us set the table theologically speaking. What do we mean by idolatry? Are we really concerned that people in the 21st century in America are going to set up little statues and shrines to to pagan gods? Well, sometimes, yes, but we're speaking of a much broader idea here. John Calvin, in his Institutes, writes, For what is idolatry, if not this, to worship the gifts in place of the giver himself? You see, in Scripture, there is a very, very clear distinction made between the creator on one hand and the creature or creation on the other. The creator creates, and the creation is created by him. The creator has always existed. The creation comes into existence. The creator deserves to be worshipped and praised and honored as creator by his creation. So a very, very clear distinction. The one is not the other. And all idolatry is, is taking the creation and moving it into the place of creator. 
And you can do that with anything. You can do that with a person, your husband, your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your kids. You can do it with your favorite hobby, your favorite food, your favorite form of entertainment. You can even do it with being good and moral and upright and resisting idolatry. If you take any of those things, however, and place them in the place of God and give them ultimate worship and honor and praise and status in your life, not only will you make a God out of what God has made, but you will actually displace God and move him into the creature category, and you will not give him the glory and honor and praise that he alone deserves. And defined that way, idolatry is not something that people in third world countries do that's kind of weird when we look at on National Geographic. It is something that each and every one of us is tempted to do. You were tempted to commit idolatry on the way here this morning. You're being tempted to commit idolatry as we speak. We are all tempted to do, as Romans 1 say, worship and serve created things rather than the creator. That is what we talk about when we're talking about idolatry. So that's the theological context. What about the time and setting of this passage? Well, unlike the past couple of weeks, we're not told specifically in this chapter when this takes place. But there's a strong possibility that it takes place in the 11th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, about uh, 594 or 593 B.C. How do we know this? Well, Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 59 says that in the fourth year of the Judean king Zedekiah's reign, he went to Babylon to profess his loyalty to this king, to King Nebuchadnezzar. And since we mention all of these officials and representatives of all the provinces in Nebuchadnezzar's empire, there's a good chance that Zedekiah is here part of this ceremony, bowing down to this image as a show of loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. In which case, it's the fourth year of Zedekiah's reign, the 11th year of Nebuchadnezzar. What does that mean? It means that Jerusalem at this time has been conquered. The people of God are under foreign oppression, exiled to a pagan nation, with all kinds of pressures to cave into paganism and to idolatry in particular. And it makes the message of this chapter to its original hearers a crucial one that is also helpful for us this morning. So with these things in mind, let's turn to our text. And from Daniel chapter 3, we will see seven lessons on how to resist idolatry. Lesson one, idolatry will tempt you, verses 1 to 7. We see first that it tempted King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the same king. We've met him a couple of weeks ago. Back in chapter 1, he tested Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and said they are ten times better than all of the wise men, all of the astrologers, all the magicians in my kingdom. Last week, in chapter 2, verse 47, he said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. This man has had a privileged position to see the wonders of God unveil in the first two chapters of Daniel. But he is tempted to idolatry. In fact, some commentators think that the vision of the image in chapter 2 kind of stirred the pot and and, and gave him the idea to set up this image here in chapter 3. Now, I've never had a vision like Nebuchadnezzar had. Probably most of you haven't either. I've definitely never had anybody like Daniel come along and tell me my dream and then tell me what it means from God. Well, even with all these advantages, Nebuchadnezzar was tempted to idolatry. And we shouldn't be surprised at this. Think back to the book of Exodus. The book that starts with God's people under foreign and boot in Egypt. They've been slaves there for hundreds of years, but they cry out to God, and through ten amazing plagues of judgment, He rescues them. And then He brings them out of Israel and leads them miraculously through the Red Sea and drowns an Egyptian army behind them. And then they go to Mount Sinai, and God speaks to them from a fiery, burning mountaintop. And then He calls their leaders up to the mountain, and he gives them his law. He gives them this incredible disclosure of his moral character. He gives them the covenant under which they're going to be his chosen people, his chosen nation. And while this is happening, Exodus 32, 1 reads this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, Moses' brother, and said to him, up, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses 
the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they make the idol. And they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Really? Really? After everything that they have seen, God do. They take a creature, not not just something that God has made, but something that they have repurposed and made with their own hands. They take the creature and they put it in place of the creator. And it's not an isolated incident. We see it time and time again in the Old Testament. The point being, no one is exempt from idolatry. No one is immune. You are not immune. You will be tempted to idolize someone or something. Tempted to take your job, your house, your car, your money, your security, your family, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your hobby, food, exercise, education, political party, lack of a political party, or if all else fails yourself and make that a God in place of God. Make that the thing that determines your ultimate reality. And if you're not careful, as a Christian, you can take not idolizing and not worshiping other things, and you can make that an idol too. Some of the most insidious and difficult to detect idols are goodness and morality and righteousness. Do not think that it will not happen to you. John Calvin, again, writes, the human heart is a factory of idols. It has tempted you today. Do not be arrogant. You must be aware. You must be prepared to face this temptation. We see that Nebuchadnezzar did not just fall into this. He didn't just wake up this morning and, and begin to, to worship this golden image. He had to make it. He had to set it up. It is handmade. It involves work, and it was a big undertaking. It is a height of 90 feet, about nine stories high, and a width of about nine feet, which those are weird dimensions. This is probably including the height of the pedestal, in which case it's, it's roughly humanoid, roughly humanoid dimensions all total. It's probably not made of gold, but probably overlaid with gold. This is the same guy who sacked the temple in Jerusalem. And we know from the temple descriptions that David had contributed tons of gold to overlay the inside. So it's possible this is made from the same gold, overlaid with the same gold that overlaid the temple. What is it an idol of? It's, it's probably not an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. The Babylonians weren't big on making their kings into gods. It's probably a Babylonian god like Bel or Marduk. But it's clear from the text that bowing to this image is a show of loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. It is his image. So to bow to this image is to bow in effect to Nebuchadnezzar as the king who set it up. And he doesn't engage in idolatry alone. Verse 2 says that he gathers officials from all over his kingdom. And as I was reading it, you probably noticed that there is a ton of repetition in this passage. These same lists and these same names get shared over and over and over again. And we don't need to go into the individual terms of all these officials or what all these individual instruments were. The point is that Nebuchadnezzar has pulled out all the stops. He has all the VIPs there. He's got a full symphony orchestra. It's impressive. But it's also satirical and comedic even. All of these lists and the way that they get repeated verbatim shows the mindlessness of idolatry. Now, we have lots of idols today, especially education and intelligence and sophistication that promise they will give us freedom from the constraint of God's word. But this text shows us that idolatry is mindless, thoughtless. These people who, who are engaging in this this morning, they're not free. They are swept up going along with the crowd like automatons, like robots, and then we see in verse 6 that there is a very dark side to this ceremony. If you will not worship, your penalty is immediate, grisly execution in the fiery furnace. Now, don't think of this furnace like the HVAC in your house or your apartment. In fact, I want you to picture an old-fashioned milk jug with an opening at the top where metal would have gone in and then wider and then a door at the bottom for wood to be fed in. Uh, it's probably close at hand. It's probably a metal smelting furnace, maybe even the furnace they used to melt down the gold to make this idol. Nebuchadnezzar's reputation is on the line. Nobody is going off script 
in this ceremony under pain of death. And this shows us the coercive power of idolatry. There are going to be times in your life where the idol itself might not be very tempting, but it really seems to beat the alternative. A huge idol in our culture is autonomy, self-creation. And if you've absorbed enough of the scriptures, you know that's bunk. You know that we don't get to define and create ourselves apart from God. But you might be asked by your neighbors, your coworkers, or your family, what your take is. Can, can, can that person just decide what their gender is, decide what their, what their lifestyle is going to be? And you're going to be tempted in that moment to at least give that lip service and say, well, you know, we all get to make our own decisions, our own ways, live and let live, you do you, something like that. You might not be bowing on the inside when you say that, but God's people are people who cannot be found to be bowing on the outside either. We must beware of the coercive temptation to idolatry as well. Nebuchadnezzar's threat his coercion gets the desired effect. Everybody bows down. All peoples, nations, and languages bow down to this idol that he has set up. He is getting everything he wants. He is in control. He is sovereign over a whole empire of conquered people. Like Jack from Titanic, he can stand up and say, I am king of the world and mean it. Or so it would seem. As this passage unfolds, there are some who will not bow. And they stand out immediately because of this second lesson we have about resisting idolatry. Resisting idolatry is countercultural, verses 8 through 12. Verse 8 sets up a contrast for us between Chaldeans on the one hand, who, who could be Babylonians, but probably refers to the group of wise men that we keep seeing over and over again in this book in chapters 1 and 2. If you think back to chapter 2, the Chaldeans, the wise men, were all at risk. They were all about to be executed because they couldn't tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. And then Daniel steps up to the plate with this interpretation from God and spares his life and their lives too. But it seems that they are not above a little professional jealousy here in chapter 3. On the other side of the contrast, we have Jews mentioned here and in verse 12. And, and it's weird because there's really no reason to mention them here as Jews. They're about to be in big enough trouble as it is for disobeying the command. So it seems like there's probably some kind of racial animus here as well. These aren't just disobedience. They are racial and national undesirables. They are infesting Babylon, these people who aren't from around here. They came over and they're literally taking the Chaldeans' jobs. The wise men aren't just looking out for the law. They have a jealous, even racially motivated axe to grind. And as an aside, as Christians, this ought to make us recoil. We are the people who worship the God who became a Middle Eastern man and routinely stirred up controversy by teaching that God's kingdom would be multi-ethnic and not just confined to one race. And we are the people who look forward to an eternity of multiracial, multi-ethnic worship of the God who made all races in his image. And so any notion of anti-Semitism, of white supremacy, or of colorblindness that tries to sweep the problem of racism under the mat should be abhorrent to us. We should be the people that see racial and ethnic diversity as something positive and beautiful to be celebrated and not a negative to be overcome by racial hegemony. These wise men set up the case against the Jews methodically. They repeat yet again the list of all the musical instruments and the punishment by immediate public execution via fiery furnace for those who disobey. And then the kicker. They present these men as certain Jews who you, Nebuchadnezzar, put over Babylon. Their jealousy for their position, their distaste for their race prompts them to offer up what some commentators see as a not-so-subtle slap in the face to Nebuchadnezzar. You're the one who put them in charge. Now look what they're doing. They're not submitting to you as king. This isn't the way you talk to somebody who's king of the world, but their blood is up. And finally, we meet these Jewish offenders, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
We've met them before, actually. We met them back in chapters 1 and 2 as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The wise men are using their Babylonian names perhaps to underscore the disconnect. They've been given these names, educated in Babylonian ways. They've been given positions of power and authority by Nebuchadnezzar. They owe him. And look what they're doing. Verse 12 continues. They pay no attention to you, which is clearly hyperbole. They have kept the laws so far. Even the diet way back in chapter 1 where they asked to have fruits and vegetables and water instead of meat and wine was a request. It was not active disobedience, but they're disobeying now. They say they don't serve your gods or worship the image that you set up, making it personal. They are attacking you, Nebuchadnezzar, because they won't bow to your gods. All of this underscores what we have seen time and time again in Daniel. What is the theme of our entire series? That they are strangers in a strange land. And sometimes they are going to stick out from the culture because they're from another culture. The culture of God's chosen people. They don't pay attention to Nebuchadnezzar in this matter. They don't serve his gods. They can't bow to his idol. They are of one cloth with Peter in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, where he says, we must obey God rather than men. Resisting idolatry is countercultural. And I'm prone to banging on American culture a lot, but resisting idolatry is counter to every culture because idolatry is inherent to every culture except for one the culture of the kingdom of God. And all of us, all believers, were once part of an idolatrous culture. Ephesians 2.2 says that we once followed the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, and lived out the passions of our flesh and desires of body and mind. We were all once idolaters by nature. But though we were idolaters, God had mercy on us by sending the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born as a human being, just like you and me, like us, tempted to idolatry, but unlike us, never once giving in to idolatry. And in his sinless perfection, he was a perfect substitute for us and died on the cross. And then God raised him up and now promises that for everyone who will put their faith and trust in him, he will forgive us for putting other things in his place. He will give us a heart that is filled with him and worship for him instead of for created things. He will take us from an idolatrous-centered culture to a culture that worships and serves him and him alone. A culture where money, sex, and power aren't God. Jesus is God. If you're an unbeliever, and you're listening, or you're here, if, an, if idolatry repulses you, you need to know this, that you will never be able to make the countercultural move of resisting idolatry without being part of the counterculture that is the kingdom of God. Will you lay down your idols of money and power and sex and self and place your faith and trust in Jesus, the only God who can set you free from those things to live a life for him instead? If you want to know more, talk to me, talk to Pastor Dave, Pastor DJ, or the person that brought you this morning. If you're a believer, I want you to make very sure that you don't miss the order here. You don't resist idols in order to be a part of the counterculture, but rather because you are a part of the counterculture that leads you to resist idols. I mentioned this earlier, but if you just make your focus on uh, on giving up idols, then your God will become giving up idols. You'll make an idol of pride, the biggest idol of all. But money, power, sex, and self will lose their place of worship in your heart only in as much as Jesus fills it. Have you reversed the order this week? Have you tried resisting idols first rather than filling your heart with Christ first? Have you found that exhausting? You always will. Stop trying to empty your heart of idols and start focusing on filling your heart with Jesus instead. Fight lust with great times in God's word. Fight envy with real fellowship, with talking to your brothers and sisters about their walk with Christ. Fight greed by giving to missionaries like the Manns, the Schuslers, the Kuypers, the Burtons through the IMB. Fill your heart with Jesus and there will be no room for idols. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are part of God's counterculture. They could not serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods or bow to his image. And they quickly found out that not only is resisting idolatry countercultural, lesson three, resisting idolatry is risky, verses 13 to 15. Any notion that Nebuchadnezzar will let this disobedience slide is very quickly dispelled. He is literally filled with rage. He calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him in disbelief. Is this true? Is this really true? Can it be right? This isn't right. Can it be? He makes it personal again. You do not serve my gods, the image that I set up? It's as if he's saying, I brought you here. I gave you your names, your education, your food, a place to live, power and authority, and this is how you repay me? He gives them a choice. You can even now go along with the mindless, mechanical idolatry like everyone else. And if you do, all is forgiven. It's all good. It's a pretense, a hollow mercy. Or they can pay the consequences. Remember, the fiery furnace is probably right there. They can probably see the smoke billowing up out of it. And then the kicker in verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? It brings the tension in the passage to the forefront. This is not Nebuchadnezzar opposing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is Nebuchadnezzar opposing Yahweh. He throws down the gauntlet. He is the king of the world. He has got people and kings and even the Judean king from all over the world bowing down and worshiping and serving his gods on command. Nobody is going to stop him if he wants to smoke them, pun intended. We'll get into theological implications later. But first consider this. If you resist idolatry, you run risks. You'll stand out. You're going to make people mad. And those people are going to be ones who have power. It shouldn't surprise us. They're the ones fitting in with the culture, going with the flow. We should expect those who enforce and participate in idolatry to be on the inside with the power and leave us on the outside with the weak and the oppressed. That's what we signed up for. Rejecting idolatry means you run the risk of making the people in power mad that your vote can't be bought and sold. It means risk losing political power because you're not a one-issue, easily manipulated voting block. It it means that you'll risk having well-meaning brothers and sisters call out our trans-political, transnational faith in the Lord Jesus Christ into question because we favor a different policy or candidate from them from time to time. I've mentioned sexual ethics before. There are few areas in our culture where we will run greater risks by not committing idolatry. I know we just had a case go to the Supreme Court, but we actually run fairly minor legal risks in this country for our faith compared to our our brothers and sisters around the world. But you will risk losing, estranging family members, friends, missing out on promotions at work, missing out on jobs altogether if you refuse to bow to the image of unlimited sexual autonomy. And we will see in this passage that God is infinitely able to protect people and deliver from danger. But consider the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verses 27 through 30. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. We are called to be those who do not merely start but finish the course with Jesus. This morning, are you aware of the risks? Are you aware of the opposition you will face for resisting idolatry? Now, I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from following Christ. And theologically, I don't think I actually can. But I am trying to prepare you as your pastor. Do not be surprised when resisting the idols of this world carries opposition. Expect it. Be ready to face it. 
and be ready to encourage your brothers and sisters who are facing it. And above all, arm yourself with unshakable reliance on the Lord Jesus Christ because as we will see in our fourth lesson this morning, resisting idolatry requires death-defying faith. Verses 16 to 18. The response that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego give to Nebuchadnezzar is a stunner. We should expect by now that they're not going to suddenly change their minds. They're not going to suddenly agree to bow down to this idol. But if we were in their shoes, we'd probably find a pretty tactful way to say that. We'd love to bow down to your idol, but we've got this God that we kind of have to serve. We'll disappoint our parents if we, you know how it is. That's not how they answer. In fact, they say, we have no answer for you in this matter. Probably not meaning the command, that they have no answer for that, but, but no answer for the theological assertion in verse 15. Who is the God who will deliver you? They don't need to tell him who God is. He's going to find out. They do tell him that he is a God who is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace and from your hand, O king. This is all he needs to know. He is the God who is about to show up. He is the God who will deliver them. And and we want to stop right there. You know, they've given the great, strong response. They've put Nebuchadnezzar in his place, and and they're waiting on God to show up and deliver them. But they go on. But if not, that is, if God were not to deliver them, be it known, O king, We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's not totally clear exactly how this is meant to serve in the narrative because by now we know that God can deliver them. Like them, we expect God to show up and put all things to right. So I don't think this is meant to create a tension. Will God or will God not show up and save them? But it is meant to highlight the death-defying faith that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have in God. They and we as readers expect God to show up and deliver them. But if he doesn't, their faith in him is such that it would not make a difference. They will not bow. And so remarkable is this faith that there is an implicit reference to them in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith passage. The author of Hebrews gets to the end and and stops calling out individuals and starts making more, more generalized statements about the way that God's people have responded to suffering in this world. And he writes in Hebrews 11, 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, and quenched the power of fire. Those two things back to back. Close the mouth of lions. Quench the power of fire. Those are two of the most prominent images we have of deliverance in the book of Daniel. So it's not explicit, but it would seem to be a reference that, spoiler alert, in chapter 6, Daniel's going to close the mouth of lions by faith. And we will see here in this chapter that the power of faith indeed quenches fire. Faith that can do this, faith like a fire extinguisher, is death-defying faith. It is, first of all, faith that God can and does deliver His people through miraculous intervention. We have seen that throughout the Old Testament, in the Exodus, with the plagues in the Red Sea. We see that in the Judges period through Samson and his Hulk-like strength. We see it with David and Goliath, a shepherd who KOs a gigantic champion with a stone. We saw it in Daniel chapter 1 where God miraculously preserved Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel on this crash diet that, that for all we know is still going on in this chapter. And we'll see it in this chapter. We'll see it in chapter 6 with Daniel in the lion's den. Scripture is clear from first to last that God is able and willing to deliver his people even by miraculous means. But death-defying faith doesn't just look to avoid death. It can see God's purpose even in allowing death. Hebrews 11, where we read, goes on and describes the heroes of the faith this way. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. 
They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering around in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. See, death-defying faith acknowledges that God can and does sometimes deliver, but he also sometimes chooses not to deliver. Sometimes the, mouth is, the, the lion's mouth is stopped, and sometimes the lion eats you, as was the case with martyrs in the first century Colosseum. Sometimes the fire is quenched, and sometimes you are burned alive, as the reformers were in Germany and England. Death-defying faith is not just faith in deliverance from dying, but it is faith in God's purposes through and over death itself. Death-defying faith looks to Christ and sees him in the garden crying out, My God, my God, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. It sees him crying out from the cross in apparent abandonment. Why have you forsaken me? And it sees him die. It sees him be buried and then sees him rise again. And promise that for all who will believe in him, he will destroy death itself, not by perpetually keeping us from death, but by delivering us from eternal spiritual death in hell and promising a physical bodily resurrection at his second coming so that even as we face death, we know that we will ultimately be delivered from death. As John Foreman puts it, in the maker's death, death is unmade. And when I lose myself, I'm saved, even in my coffin. This is the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They know this God can deliver. They expect this God to deliver. But even if he does not, they would not bow to Nebuchadnezzar's gods or Nebuchadnezzar's idols. They can trust that even if God were to allow their deaths, he would be working through that for his sovereign good purposes for them. Believer, your faith in Christ must be a death-defying faith. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit to be Christ's disciple. And it profits us nothing if we will gain the world and lose our souls in the process. And if we only trust him up to the point of losing our lives for his sake, then we don't trust him at all. How can we grow in our faith? How can we develop a death-defying faith? Well, two things. One, I would encourage you to go home this afternoon and read the hard sayings of Jesus. Read Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through 26. Read it a couple of times. And consider that Jesus meant and still means these things. And then meditate and consider where you need to take up your cross and follow him just as he has taken up the cross for you. Number two, fast. Fast from food, primarily. There are many biblical reasons to fast, many benefits, but one is that it allows us to feel affliction and discomfort. Most days, our faith does not create a whole lot of pain for us. Not beyond a few nasty tweets. Nobody physically beats us up. Nobody literally robs us. And when we suffer little, we will love little and we will trust little. Now, we're not commanded in Scripture to go and seek out suffering and oppression. We don't engage in self-flagellation as some monks have. But fasting is a way we can voluntarily, biblically endure discomfort and condition ourselves to accepting pain for the sake of Christ. So I would encourage you this week, pick a day, pick part of a day, even just pick one meal. Fast. Let yourself feel physical discomfort that you could avoid for the sake of Christ. And as you do so, pray for those who are enduring worse hardships than you are all over the world for the sake of Christ. If you would resist idols, you must be possessed of a death-defying faith. Because as we see in our fifth lesson this morning, from verses 19 to 23, resisting idols is costly. We said earlier that resisting idolatry is risky. 
but, but risk is all potential. It's all what might happen, what could hypothetically happen. Well, we see in these verses that resisting idolatry doesn't just potentially cost us something. Sometimes it really does cost us everything. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fury. He heats up the furnace, not literally seven times hotter as though he has a dial there on the side. He heats it up to the nth degree, as hot as it will go. Then he orders Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tossed into the furnace, and he doesn't even give the soldiers time to undress them. They're bound up in their nice court clothes. This is going to happen fast. There is no appeals process. There is no sitting on death row. There is no last meal. And so urgent is the fact that the soldiers can't even take the proper precautions. The furnace is so hot, the matter is so urgent that as they are dropping Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, the flames come up and they kill the soldiers who are dropping them in. And they go right into the top. Most of us have never seen a fire like this. I don't want you to think about the fire pit in your backyard or your charcoal grill. This is a huge metal smelting furnace. If you have seen the climax of the return of the king, when Frodo and Sam climb inside the volcanic Mount Doom to destroy the one ring, and it's this huge blazing inferno inside, that is what these men are being subjected to. There's no escape. There is no way to survive. The soldiers are already dead. There is no reason these men should not be dead too in seconds. And at this point anyway, God hasn't delivered them. Resisting idolatry is always risky, and sometimes it is also costly. Resisting idolatry doesn't just carry existential dread of things that might happen. It carries an actual cost of things that will happen. But the cost of not resisting idolatry is far, far higher. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29 through 30, If your right, hand causes, right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole of your body go into hell. Giving into idolatry to avoid paying a cost now only means that we will pay a far, far, far higher cost later. Yes, we will have the pleasures of sin now, but we will lose the God from whom are all good things forever. And we pay a cost now, too, because the idol that you are giving into will never be able to satisfy you. Every time you say yes to that idol, you are saying no to satisfaction and joy and contentment in Jesus. This morning, are you struggling with idolatry? Do not just consider the cost of not giving in. Consider the cost of giving in. Consider that your idol will never be able to fulfill the promise it is making to you. Resist. Turn afresh to Christ, the author of life, the giver of all good things, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore, and resist. And do so knowing that you will not be resisting idolatry alone. For the God who commands you to flee idolatry, our sixth lesson tells us, will be with you in the fire of adversity. Verses 24 through 27. There's a shift in the narrative in perspective at this point. Rather than just telling us play by play what's happening in the furnace, we instead get the reactions of Nebuchadnezzar and his counselors. Nebuchadnezzar jumps to his feet and he asks, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? And the men around him all agree, yes, that's, that's exactly what we did. But Nebuchadnezzar says, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, big question here. Who's the fourth guy? Nebuchadnezzar's going to say in a few verses that this is God's angel, but it doesn't really answer the question for us because angel just means messenger. It, it could refer to a class of created spiritual beings like Gabriel and Luke, like Michael that we're going to meet later on in this book. 
But there are several places in Scripture where it seems like angel could be referring to God himself. I'll look at just one, Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. The famous burning bush passage. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. So in one verse, it's the angel of the Lord. And in the next verse, it's God himself. And at least in this passage, it seems like it is God, and yet somehow a distinct person from God. And as you might guess, this has led to a long tradition of interpreters seeing this and other mentions of the angel of the Lord, and other mentions of angels, including here in Daniel 3, as a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, God the Son did not come into existence in the first century in Bethlehem when he was born of Mary. Rather, the eternal Son of God became incarnate in that moment, became a man in that moment in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So it certainly seems possible that this is Jesus prior to being incarnated, but, but we're not told for sure. Jesus affirms his eternality in the Gospels, but he never comes right out and says Yes, that was me in the fiery furnace. So is this Jesus? It's plausible. It's possible. It might even be likely. And if you think it is, you've got good company with a long history of interpreters. I, I, just, I don't think we can say definitively that this is definitely him. But what we can say for sure is that God is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. Because if it is merely an angel then God's presence to bless and protect and deliver is there with him. Isaiah 43, 2, that David read for us earlier, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. He is with them in the furnace. The God who will deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of Nebuchadnezzar's hands is with them just as they said. And the effect on Nebuchadnezzar is immediate. He runs to the door. Servants of the Most High God, come out, he says. Now he knows the God who will deliver them out of his hand. They come up. And the counselors see that the fire had no power over them. Not a hair on their head is singed. Their outermost garments are not harmed. They don't even smell like smoke. I don't know if you've ever sat outside by a fire for a couple of hours, like outside the fire, like three feet away, you stink afterwards, you smell like smoke. These guys don't. It's as though they were never in the fire at all. Brothers and sisters, this is your God. He was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire down to the finest detail. The fire couldn't do anything except burn the bonds off their hands because God was with them, and he will be with you in the fire of adversity that you will face when you resist idolatry. Are you facing a fire? You need to trust God this morning that he is still with you. I challenge you this morning, don't just ask, where is God in my suffering? But answer that question, he is with me. He may have left me in the fire, but he has not left me, and he will not forsake me. He is only allowing into my life what first passes through his hands, and he will use what he allows into my life for my good and for his glory. If you are suffering this morning, especially if you are suffering for resisting idolatry, God has not left you and will not forsake you. He will use this to make you more like Christ. And as we see in our seventh and final lesson from Daniel 3, he will use this to advance his kingdom. Verses 28 to the end. 
Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to the deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is immediate and powerful. He blesses the Lord their God for delivering them. He even commends them for ignoring his command and offering up their bodies rather than worship and serve any god but their own. And he makes a decree. No one is allowed to speak anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under pain of bodily harm and destruction of property. For there is no other god who is able to rescue this way. But first of all, notice what this is not. This is not Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. He's got nice things to say about God. He has nice things to say about his people. Verse 30 says that he promotes them in the province. But there's no repentance. This isn't like the king of Nineveh in Joshua chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has a high opinion of God. But it is not faith in God that saves. If you were here this morning and you were not a Christian, we as a church are not trying to get you to say nice things about Jesus or about us. James 2 says that even the demons will affirm that there is one God. No, we urge you and implore you to turn from your idols and from your sin and put your whole faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Nebuchadnezzar does not do this. But what he does do is radically change the circumstances for believing Jews in Babylon. From state-sponsored persecution to state-sponsored protected status for their religion. And he put legs on this by promoting these three believing Jews to higher positions of authority in the kingdom. Don't underestimate the significance of this. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now it is true. There is no environment, there are no circumstances that can prevent God from saving and sanctifying human beings. But our God does use means and one of the means he uses is peace and freedom from oppression. And we should not be surprised if there were those in Babylon who were emboldened to place their faith in the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in part because of this change in circumstances that they brought about through their steadfast resistance to idolatry. And we should not be surprised when God uses our resistance to idolatry to draw people to himself and advance his kingdom. Is not one of the first charges laid on Christians that we are hypocrites? That our talk doesn't match our walk? Which is true. We are sinners. And even after being saved, we will invariably fail to live up to God's perfect standard. But when unbelievers see Christians engaging in idolatry like the world around them, does it not lend credence to their views? And if they see us renouncing the world, renouncing idolatry and turning our back on those things to worship and serve Jesus Christ instead, will that not give them a glimpse of the, un, of the surpassing worth and glory of Christ? If you are praying this morning, if you are scheming for a chance to share the gospel with an unbeliever, take pains to, to ensure that you are not undercutting that by engaging in idolatry. Let them see you renounce the world. Let them see you pay the cost and run the risk of rejecting the idols of your culture. And they may thereby get a glimpse of the worthiness of the Jesus you serve. And he may use that glimpse to draw them to himself. To draw them to faith in he alone who is worthy of all worship that idols aren't. And he alone who can deliver and save in all the ways that idols can't. Idolatry will tempt you. Resisting idolatry is countercultural and risky. It is costly. It demands of us death-defying faith. But if we will resist, God promises to be with us in the adversity we will face, and he promises to use our resistance to advance his kingdom. 
May God grant us by his grace to worship and serve no other gods but him and to bring him glory as we do. Let us pray. Great Father, we worship and serve you and honor you, Father. We thank you, God, that you are the only God who can deliver. There is no king in this world who can make a law, no king who can enforce it by pain of death that you cannot deliver us from, Lord. And God, every moment of every day, we are facing a barrage of temptations to worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. Lord, would you give us grace this morning to look at that with clear eyes, where we have assumed, where we have overlooked idolatry in our own hearts. Give us eyes to see that, Father. Give us grace to reject that. Give us grace to do so when it's costly, when we face adversity, Father. And Lord, for those of us this morning who are in the fire of adversity, would you give them a taste of your presence? We, we do not know, Lord, how you may choose to deliver them, but let them know, Lord, that you have not forsaken them and that you have a purpose and a plan in everything they are going through. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.